Charlie and Patsy are gone this weekend. Charlie's speaking at a conference. That's the bad news. The good news is that he'll be back next week. Well, if you uh, are in the adult Sunday school class, you know when the rotation comes around for me to teach, I've been in the book of Luke, so I thought I'd stay there. We're in chapter 15, and we're going to read the whole chapter, so you might want to start praying for me now, if you know my reading is not that great. Chapter 1, verse 15 of Luke. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he says, uh, he, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there, is, or there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the, of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. There he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough, to, to, uh, enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will go up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began to inquire what these things could be. 
And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go, to, to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're not silent, that you do speak to us through your word, by your spirit. We ask for your wisdom now to listen to you, that you be honored and glorified, that you do in our hearts what only you can do at this time. We thank you that we can ask such a thing, for this is our created purpose to live according to your life in us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So this chapter is, is just rich. There are so many things that we could talk about. And I've, I've been just fighting over that these last couple of weeks in preparation, thinking through just what do I take out in order to to finish on time. And some of you know that that would be a great miracle in and of itself. But that is, that is my endeavor. We'll see what the Lord does. It's been pointed out that this chapter could be likened to uh, what is called a triptych. And you know what that is. Um, it's not working is what it is. It was working before, and they put new batteries in, but the batteries are dead. That's what this says. So anyway, I guess it's up to you, John. Next slide. All right. A triptych is, you know, one of those three-paneled pictures, each panel revealing part of the whole thing. And as you add each panel, you get more and more of the whole story, the whole picture. And that's what we kind of see when we look in this chapter as Jesus gives the parable telling three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. And as we look at all three, we start to get more and more from it. There's a lot of repetition in this chapter. And repetition always equals emphasis. When somebody is repeating something, they're really wanting to get that something across. And here I see several Repetitions are several things repeated. We see a hundred sheep, one lost, found, and celebration. We find ten coins, one lost, found, celebration. Two sons, one lost, found, celebration. But at the very beginning of this chapter, we find why Jesus has to give this parable. What's the reason for this teaching. 
In verses 1 to 3, we find that the tax collectors and the sinners are coming near to him. But in verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The lost sinner was seen coming to Jesus. Not because Jesus was compromising his message. Not because he was making it palatable for them to hear. Charlie once said from this pulpit that the lost sinner should not enter into this room and feel comfortable. That grabbed my attention. I thought, oh my goodness, Charlie, where are you taking us? And then he said, because no believer should walk into this room and feel comfortable as the body together goes before the Lord. Yet we are so wrapped up in wanting to make the gospel palatable. We're so wrapped up in wanting to say, it's okay. But folks, sin is not okay. If it were okay, then Adam and Eve would have never been kicked out of the garden. Gee, it's okay you took from the fruit. Promise you won't do it again. It's not okay. He does not compromise his message. But instead, what does he do? In truth, he reveals, he shows, actively shows his care and his concern for the lost. He understood their need and he tried to help them while the Pharisees pointed out their problems with criticism and kept them at arm's length. We see in verse 2 that the Pharisees and the, uh, the, the teachers, the scribes, were grumbling. The word grumble, interesting word, it actually means to express discontent in an emphatic way. They are not happy. They are discontented. And they are very vocal about it. Reminds me of myself these last couple of years. I've been very discontent with how a lot of things have gone on, and I've been very vocal about it. We find here that the religious leadership, very vocal about Jesus not being the way they want Messiah to be. I can find this word grumble only twice in Scripture. Both times are here in Luke. The other is in chapter 19, verse 7, where Jesus, we read this, when they saw it, they all, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And that man being a Pharisee, a scribe. Or no, that man, I'm sorry, being a tax collector. So both times the word is used, it's in the context of Jesus ministering to, being active, and taking the initiative toward the sinner. We need to be careful that we do not become grumblers. That we do not become emphatically discontent with Jesus. When he doesn't behave 
the way we expect him to or the way we demand that he behave. Again, the context here is how we should behave toward others with regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Chapter 2. I don't know what I was looking at. There is no chapter 6. In Luke chapter 2, we find that sharing the gospel is not simply in what we say, but it's how we behave. It's how we act toward the one who's in need. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 2 and read, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my, feet, or at my footstool, at my feet. Verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen. My beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And then we go on with this. In verse 14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister without clothing is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, I'm praying for you. Hang in there. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead because our, our being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, the works are the result of the faith. There should be works in the believer's life, but it's the result of our faith in Christ. It's not the way to faith. You believe that God is one. This is part of a doctrinal statement that the Jew would would, would proclaim. It is correct doctrine. You believe that God is one. Well, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. It's been pointed out that the shuddering going on here is possibly from the fact that once you say you, that you believe that God is one, what you're saying is there's only one God. And the reason they shudder is because they want to be their own God. How do we respond to Jesus' revelation of himself to us? 
Are we just full of good doctrine? But no work. As an elder, I want to encourage us as a body. And not just because I'm an elder, but because I am, I need to say this. We need to be careful here at Bernie Bible that we don't become content with just filling our heads with strong biblical teaching and preaching that we get every Sunday from Charlie. What a blessing it is to have such a man in this pulpit. But folks, if it just stops with us sitting there and listening to it and filling our heads with all this truth and saying, oh, that's a neat point. Oh, that's really great. Wow, that's it. That's so deep. But we never put feet, we never flesh out, put feet to what it is that's coming into our head. Then really, we're content with just being our own God. We believe that God is one. but it goes no further. So we see the reason for Jesus' teaching in this chapter. Now we're going to move on, and I want us to look at the seeker. It's a common phrase that's used in the church today, the seeker. You know, anybody that's my age and up, you know the term. I'm 56, by the way, if you need to know what my age is. We know the term seeker-friendly. majority of people younger than me kind of struggle with that a little bit. Not sure what that is. Though so many have actually grown up in it not knowing what it is. But we know that seeker-friendly, the whole idea, you know, it started about 30 years ago. The whole idea was, you know, how can we make things more comfortable for the seeker, more comfortable for the non-believer, that that person would come to Christ. And so we started changing a lot of things in church, didn't we? We changed a lot of things. We changed a lot of how we do things. And what we did is we went into the world and we started knocking on doors. Not Just the world, the church universal was active in this. Knocking on doors and asking non-believers, what is it that you're not comfortable with when you hear the word Christian? And then we started writing it all down, and we went back into our churches, and again, this happened all over the world, and we started taking away what the world didn't like about us, what the sinner didn't like about us, and we started adding things that that they would like. We did it all for the sake of evangelism. And studies have shown that right now in this country, there are, there's never been more megachurches in America than there are right now. But there's no more people attending church than there ever has been. So all we've succeeded in is making ourselves more comfortable. And the world wants nothing to do with us. Because so often there's nothing about us That's different. There's nothing about us that actually meets their need. There's just a bunch of rules that we're even kind of shaky on there. 
And the reason I talk about this is because I think we've got it backwards. The seeker. The seeker in this chapter is not the lost sinner. The seeker in this chapter is a picture of God. And so I agree, we need to be seeker sensitive. We need to be sensitive to our God. And making adjustments that agree with Him. And not man. We find Him seeking. How so? We see the value that He places on the one. You see, in verse 4, there's the one sheep. In verse 8, there's the one coin. In verse 20, there's the one son. There is not one who is unimportant to the Lord. He desires all to know him and to be with him. Next slide. Scripture's clear on this. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes, whoever entrusts him, shall not perish but have eternal life. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 99 of 100 sheep was not enough. Think about that. 99 of 100 was not enough. He wanted them all. 9 of 10 coins was not enough. She wanted them all. 1 of 2 sons was not enough. He wanted them both. In verse 20, we see this. So he got up, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. It's been pointed out by Lyfield, because his father saw him while he was still a long way off, Verse 20 has led many to assume that the father was waiting for him. Perhaps daily searching the distant road, hoping for his appearance. What an incredible picture. Because this is true of God. Next slide. In 2 Chronicles verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 9, we read, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support. Now that should grab our attention. God wants to strongly support someone. Who? The one whose heart is completely his. Jesus wants all of us, come to me, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So in this chapter, we see the value God places on the one. 
Years ago, when I was a counselor at his hill, that was century at least ago. It does feel like it. <laughs> Had this little 12-year-old camper. And he came to us from an orphanage. No mom, no dad. Really, that age where people just weren't that interested in adopting. While he was there that week, he came to me halfway through the week. He asked Kelly, can, can we talk? I said, sure. We stepped outside. It was in the evening. And I remember him up at camp, standing next to the ark, kicking rocks, with his head down, not wanting to look up at me because he was ashamed. And he said, Kelly, all week I've been hearing how God loves me and how he will forgive me. And I said, yeah, that's right, of anything. And he looked up at me and he says, I don't know. It's, it's pretty bad. And I thought to myself, you're 12 years old, how bad can it be? So the, I believe the Holy Spirit is just working in my heart. So I just asked him, I don't do this on a regular basis, but I did ask him, I said, what is it? What have you done? And he looked up at me with fear in his eyes. I guess nobody had ever asked him that. And so he told me, and I remember thinking, yeah, that was a shocker. That was pretty bad. I was completely shocked that that came out of a 12-year-old's mouth. I could not believe that he had been engaged in this. But then the Lord just allowed me to see something very precious. When I told him that in Christ, if you place your faith in Christ, God forgives. He couldn't believe that. I remember the little boy, having placed his faith in Christ, finished out the week of, of summer camp, and when he left, I was looking for him to say goodbye, and I, I missed him. I looked down at the road, standing next to our chapel. I looked down to the road. He was already in the orphanage van, on his way back to that orphanage, with no mother, no father, and no hope of ever having one. And I have the picture in my head right now, the biggest grin from ear to ear, because God wanted him. This is a big deal. There are, some, there are so many people in this world, and I believe even some in this room, who need to come to this realization that God wants you. And he has made it possible for you to be his through his son, Jesus Christ. He wants the lost. What does Jesus say about the lost in verses 4 and 8, 24 and 32. 4, 8, 24, 32. In all these verses, Jesus speaks specifically of the lost. In chapter 19 
of Luke. In verse 10, he says this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Same word. Now, just who is it that Jesus is seeking? Well, in our context, in chapter 15, in verse 13, we read this. Not many days later, the young son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his, his estate with loose living. The, word, the words loose living has been translated in the Amplified Bible like this. Reckless and loose living. It's out of control. And in the context of the chapter, this reckless and loose living is described in verse 30 as being sexual sin. Now before I get into all of this, I want to be clear. I want to make sure this is heard. Sex is a beautiful thing when kept within God's design. Instead, we've perverted it. We've twisted it to where it's not really even comfortable to talk about. We hear the word, and right away we get tense. That should not be. Next slide. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we read this, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What an incredible picture we're giving here. See, they're living out the image of God. And we see that part of that living out the image of God for the husband and the wife is to be engaged in a sexual relationship. Wow. And in doing so, what? They're living, what? Not, that, that verse 25 is just, you know, when you're a little kid, you wonder why is that in there? When you get older, you don't know why either. But when we look at it within the context, it becomes an incredible lesson. To be naked and unashamed is to live what? Living out the image of God, conscious of Him, not of you. You see, it's the next chapter where the opposite becomes reality. When they take from the fruit and all of a sudden they realize that they are naked. All of a sudden, Perversion has been brought upon God's perfection. The sexual relationship between the husband and the wife is ordained by God. Next slide, chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 6. So they are not, no, I'm sorry, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So to be clear, sex is a beautiful thing when kept within God's design, but it, outside of God's design, it is sin. It's a shame that we have to say that, isn't it? It's amazing that we have to make that statement. 
outside of God's design is sin. We, we had a, a student a few years back at His Hill who went home and she got a job at a Christian high school. Now this high school happens to be probably the largest feeder to torchbearer schools worldwide. We have had many students throughout the years from this school at His Hill. We've had many students come from this school. We've had a number of staff at His Hill actually come from this school. And so our student got a job there. And this was what was told to her by one of the staff at that school. While it is sin for married people to have sex outside of marriage, the Bible doesn't say anything about premarital sex. To which our student responded, what about fornication? Interesting word. I think so often we, uh, we have a hard time distinguishing the difference between fornication and adultery. The word fornication in Scripture means to be engaged in sexual immorality of any kind. Let's look at the next slide. Mark 7, verse 21 says this, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murderers, adulteries. Fornication and adultery are two different things. Next slide, 1 Corinthians 6, 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute, and that's what's happening here in our context, in chapter 15 of Luke, the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. Now wait a minute, we just found out that one, to be one flesh is something God has designed. It's a beautiful thing, but it is for the husband and the wife. Why is that? Well, Scripture is clear. The relationship between the husband and the wife is a picture of our relationship with Christ. And when we start to play around with that picture and distort it, we're no longer presenting the truth of Christ. And we were designed to show His image. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Now, while all of this is common for the unrighteous, for the lost sinner, it is not to be so among those who have placed their faith in Christ and are sanctified. It is common. It is It is. Understandable that it would be found among the unrighteous, but not understandable that it would be found among the saints. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In chapter 6, I want to start in verse 9. I've already said repetition equals emphasis. There's a phrase that's repeated in this passage we're going to look at. Three times it's repeated. And it's the phrase, or do you not know? 
So in other words, do I really have to say this? This is basic. This is something that we should know. And actually, I think he's kind of saying it like this. You know this. There is no believer who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who has not been given a check on this. A check in the heart. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. My goodness. You know, we look at this list and we go, well, yeah, an idolater, that makes sense. Adulterers, that's horrible. Effeminate, shouldn't be that way. Homosexuals, that's a perversion. Thieves, ah, they're just no good. The covetous, man, that's against Ten Commandments. Drunkards, uselessness. Revelers, man, come on, smarten up. Swindlers, no use for. But then we find that the fornicator is in there. And remember, the word fornication means involved in any sexual sin, any illicit act. That is not true to what God has designed between the husband and the wife. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? That's pretty scary. That should grab our attention, but look at this. Such were some of you. What's the difference? But you were washed. But you were sanctified. You were set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me. What's going on here? But not all things are profitable. Yeah, yeah, I'm saved. And because I'm saved, I'm free. I can do what I want. Yeah. Go ahead. Once met a pastor who was not qualified according to Scripture to be a pastor because of what Paul says to Timothy about being the husband of one wife. It was not true of him. And he would tell you it's not true of him. Matter of fact, he even said, I know that I'm not qualified according to what Paul says to Timothy. But I've been saved by grace. So I can be a pastor. Listen, grace is not the freedom to live the way you want to. Grace is the enabling to live according to your creation. We could not do that before Christ. We have been given all that we need to do so in Christ. And so Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but 
I will not be mastered by anything. Colossians 2.8 says what? See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Be taken captive by Christ. And here Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 16, or do you not know? Come on, you know this. That the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, for he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And here we go again. Or do you not know? Come on, you know this. That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This lifestyle that the prodigal son is engaged in has robbed him of what he is to know. Has robbed him of the life that he is to be living. This is true of every sexual immorality found in Scripture. Think of these. Abram and Hagar. Samson and Delilah, David and Bathsheba. Just three examples. And each of these examples resulted in hurt, irrational thinking. And their sin affected others. Once I had a student come to me. Uh, not to me, she came to Bible school. And before she got there, she was pretty open about it. And when she got there, she came to me to talk about it some more, that she was addicted to sex. And she confessed that it was very destructive. So we talked about this, and I told her, now listen, while you're here, we're holding you to this, that you want to change. And if you fall into this, you will not be able to stay. And she said, I understand and I agree. But it's an addiction now. So you're going to need Jesus for this. She met one of our guys. And he was quite taken with her. I pulled him aside to explain the situation to him. He understood. But he just could not. He just could not stay away from her. And she wanted to be with him. They were with each other all the time. I would talk to her about it, and she, she would say, but Kelly, this is okay. This is good. This is fine. So finally, <clears throat> before things got out of hand and they were rapidly moving in that direction, Charlie and I had to make the decision to send her home. She was hurt. She was irrational in her thinking. 
and her sin affected others. I've seen sexual sin by Christians devastate families, devastate churches, devastate marriages. I've even seen the sin of fornication destroy a marriage. So fornication, sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage. I've even seen the sin of fornication destroy a marriage on the couple's wedding night. As he confessed his sin to his bride and she could not forgive him. And it drove her into a dark place. It drove her into a lifestyle that was not profitable. The couple could not stay together. Sexual sin robs the participant, but it also robs those around of God's good. Now, why would I spend so much time on this one topic in this chapter? Why would I want to talk about something so uncomfortable for us to talk about? I've been asking myself that question all week. And it's because we need to truly see just how black this situation is for the prodigal son. if we're going to go on and truly appreciate what comes next. Because this man, this young man, who has found himself in this situation, comes to this reality, verse 20. So he got up, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran And he embraced him, and he kissed him. i got to confess, for years I've read this story, and I get to that verse, and I go, of course. He's the dad. And completely missing just what it is he's embracing and what it is he's kissing but is lost, living in darkness, trapped in it, son. And he kisses him. Now what's necessary from the lost prodigal in order to be found? What's necessary from him? In verses 7 and 10, 17 to the end of the chapter, we see this. This word is repeated, and because of time, I'm not going not to go to all the verses. But the word that's repeated is the word repentance. The same word is found back in chapter 13 and verse 3, where we read this. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Several times in the book of Acts, we read where Peter says in chapter 2, repent and 
each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. After they ask the question, what must we do? Chapter 3, verse 19 of Acts, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Acts 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And we see an incredible picture of what it is, what repentance is. In verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. I will cease in the dependency I have upon myself and I will be dependent upon him. An interesting word or phrase in verse 17, he came to his senses. It actually means he came to himself. He actually saw himself for who he was. It reminded me of Exodus 3 where Moses, after he for so many years had tried to please God with his own ability. Finally, when he was 80 years old, standing before God at the burning bush, he made this statement, who am I? What an incredible statement, who am I? God, I, I, it, it's not in me. But he didn't stay there, did he? He went on and he said, what? Who are you? See, the prodigal didn't stay there. He came to himself, but he didn't stay there, did he? He went to his father. And, in, and Moses, in going to the Father, what, what does he find out? He finds out God says, I am. And I was going to read this to you. If you listened to our podcast a couple of weeks ago, you heard me read this list. It would take me two, I think it's two minutes and 20 seconds to read this list of how many different ways the word am is translated in Scripture. So what's God saying? He's saying this, listen, you name your hurt and I'm your healing. You name your confusion and I'm your clarity. Give me your questions. I'm your answer. And then Jesus goes on and he speaks uh, of the phrase himself when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. You see, God wants you and I to know the same. And coming to ourself, don't stop there. But in coming to ourselves, see him for who he is. You name your hurt, I'm your healing in Christ. You name your confusion in Christ, I'm your clarity. Give me your questions in Christ, I am your answer. Repentance involves a recognition and acting out on the fact that my way is wrong, his way is right. My way is death. His way is life. My way is dependence upon me. His way is dependence upon Jesus, dependence upon I am. 
In the last two minutes, I want to cover one other lost person. We don't often think about this. We have seen the reckless and lost prodigal son, but now we come to perhaps the scariest one to be lost. And that would be the older brother. We have in him a picture of the Pharisee and the scribe that Jesus is talking to. You see, it's like this. Without the relational closeness, listen to this. Without the relational closeness, the positional closeness means nothing to us. There's a false security that we find with the older brother found in verse 29. But he answered and he said to his father, look. He goes on and he says, I've always obeyed you. I've always done what needs to be done. But you've never done this for me. One of my commentaries speaks about this verse saying, those words betrayed the fact that the older brother thought he had a relationship with his father because of his work. He served his father not out of love, but out of a desire for reward. Verse 31 is very clear. The problem here is he does not know what is his. Son, verse 31, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Now, we don't know. There's much debate over this. We don't know if this is a picture of a lost sinner or a backslidden Christian, a picture of that, because Jesus doesn't tell us, and I'm okay with that. Because to tell you the truth, as a believer, if you are not abiding in Christ, there is no assurance of your benefit in being his. Do you know your worth to God in Christ? And I say there's no assurance. What I mean is there's no realization of what is yours. Do you feel as though you are of no worth? That you have to act a certain way depending on what you do to be worthy? Do you feel lost? Next slide. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Titus 3.5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Do you know the wealth that belongs to you in Jesus? Verse 22 is incredible. He has his son, has a robe put on him, has a ring put on his finger, and sandals on his feet. The robe, it's, it's been pointed out that the robe would be a ceremonial one that would be for the guest of honor. The prodigal. The one that is in darkness but has returned to his father. He's given the robe of honor. The ring would signify authority. And the sandals were for those who were free. Last slide. Do you know this reality in Christ? For in him all the fullness of deity, in Christ all the fullness of God, 
dwells in bodily form. And in him, in Christ, you have been made complete. And he's the head of all rule and authority. If you've placed your faith in Christ, this is your freedom. Now, I want to end. I grew up in a church that gave an altar call every Sunday, morning and night. We're not going to do that. Man, we used to sing all 12 verses of Just As I Am, and if nobody made a decision, we'd hum six more. We're not going to do that. But what I want to do real quick here, I know I'm over time. You can fire me. I want all the elders of this church to stand up for a second. Okay, look around so you can see who the elders are. Stay standing. I want all the deacons to stand up. Okay, now you can look around and see who the deacons are. Now, I would like the Sunday school teachers to stand up. There's one that stood up, and the others are already standing. <laughs> all right, go ahead and have a seat. Now, the reason I did this, I wanted you to look around and see these people. These are not the only people that I would recommend, but these people are just quick reference. I am becoming increasingly convinced that there are many in the church worldwide who think they know Jesus but do not. They are lost. They have never placed their faith in Christ. They have never said to the Lord, I cannot appease you. I cannot be good enough. I need you, Lord Jesus. I trust you with my life for what you have done on my behalf on the cross. I believe that you have defeated death, have resurrected from the grave, and that you are seated at the right hand of God right now in the place of authority. I place my faith in you. And I know without a doubt there are believers worldwide who have placed their faith in Christ but can identify with Galatians 3.3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And I want to invite you to deal with that. If you don't have someone in your life that you can talk to, then go to one of these that stood up. We want to talk with you. We want to help you think through this and encourage you toward what needs to be done. If you're not comfortable coming to us this morning, our phone numbers are found in the bulletin, call us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us, your patience with us, your pursuit of us. Each one of us in Christ. And so we ask for your wisdom to respond to you, Lord. We pray for those that who may be in this room who do not know you, Jesus, that they will recognize their need and move to you. We pray for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ but continue to, to depend upon ourselves and not you, Jesus. We ask for your wisdom to abide in you alone that you be glorified. 
We thank you, Lord, for these reminders. In Jesus' name, amen.